Friends, it's a great joy to be here this evening. I'm grateful for the opportunity to open up and share God's authoritative word with you. The passage of scripture that I would like to draw your attention to tonight is found in Romans chapter 10. So please take your Bible and turn with me to Romans 10. We'll be considering verses 14 through 17. The title of this sermon is Delighting in Your Duty. Romans 10. Again, our verses under consideration will be 14 through 17, but I will begin in verse 8 to give us some context for this brief passage. Prior to verse 8, he speaks of the righteousness based on faith and where it comes from. And verse 8 continues the argument stating, But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For the scriptures say, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes by hearing, and hearing the word of Christ. Friends, last week, Riley, by way of Matthew 9, reminded us of the inciting event, the impetus, if you will, the catalyst of evangelism. And that is Jesus' great compassion for sinners and his Instructions to pray that laborers will go into the harvest. Tonight, we'll think of the instructions to those who have been sent into the harvest. What are the specific instructions that our Lord Christ has given us as we enter into his harvest? I would like to begin with a series of questions. What is the duty 
of an athlete on a team. There's peripheral duties of an athlete. You might think that they need to have a good nutritional program. They may need to stretch and keep their body in good shape. They may, may need to review their plays. But ultimately, what is the primary duty of an athlete? who belongs to a team. It is for them to selflessly serve the team by doing their specific duty to the end of winning the game or the competition. Likewise, what is the duty of a soldier in the army? They may have peripheral duties and, and daily things that they attend to, such as cleaning their equipment and maintaining their physical conditioning, which, as you can imagine, having uh, clean equipment that functions properly in the heat of battle and maintaining physical conditioning uh, would serve one well for the rigors of war. But the ultimate and primary duty of a soldier is to selflessly follow the orders given to him by his commanding officer to achieve the ultimate objective of winning the battle. One more, if you will. What is the primary duty of a musician in an orchestra? I'm likely the least musically inclined person in this room, so I have no idea what peripheral duties any musicians might have. Um, but the primary duty of one in an orchestra is to selflessly play the notes before him to be in harmony with his section members. And you might imagine that whatever nerves might come upon you with a responsibility that has been entrusted to an athlete or a soldier or a musician might be partially alleviated if, for an athlete, Tom Brady was in the huddle with you. Or if you're a soldier, you can look into the sky and know that you're going into battle with an AC-130 gunship at your beck and call. That's powerful. And likewise, for a musician, if Yo-Yo Ma is on the cello or the keys, you might feel a bit more confident that he will make you sound better. So this brings us to the question, what is the primary duty of the Christian, a citizen of God's kingdom? Well, in order to understand what our primary duty is, we must first understand what God's ultimate goal is. And God's ultimate goal, as we see in Ephesians 1.6, is for his glorious grace to be praised. All things are for the praise of his glorious grace. Or 2 Corinthians 4.15 likewise tells us that God's goal is for, uh, so, that all, so, that as it reads, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So as you can imagine, as a multitude of people continue to grow, and we continue to multiply, and there's more and more offspring that is brought into the family of God. The thanksgiving and the beautiful songs that we sing as we just did a moment ago, the volume raises, and more and more of God's creation is ascribing to him the glory that he is due, that he is earnestly and justly due. For we are speaking of the God who spoke all things into existence. We are speaking of the God who created both mountains and valleys and the, the array of all animals, both in the sea and on land. 
bears to butterflies. He's a glorious God, one who magnificently creates all things for his glory. So in understanding his ultimate goal, what is our role in his family as a soldier in his army, as his child? Well, the text that we have tonight will explore that and hopefully clearly answer to you what you, a child of God, are to do to glorify him. Verse 14 reads, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Paul opens with four clear conditions. And they are rhetorically stated. Paul uses this literary device elsewhere, uh, namely in Romans 6, where we're familiar, uh, should we let grace abound? And he says, by no means. He's emphatically denying that an answer is necessary, for all know the answer. By no means should we let grace abound. Here, likewise, there are four rhetoricals listed. And they read, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? They can't. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? They can't. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? The point is that no one can call on the name of the Lord for salvation if they've never heard of him. And friends, this is where we understand that it is incumbent upon us as those who profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior to speak of his saving power, to speak of his glory and the kingdom that he is bringing. For if we do not, souls hang in the balance, in the balance of heaven and hell. And without the message of Christ, the definite destination is hell. This is very serious. This is weighty. This is a weighty matter for us to consider. When we speak of loving others, how better can we love them than to speak truth to them? How better can we love them than extending the one and only means to salvation? And that is exactly what we see here. In the first condition, we see that people must believe in Christ, i.e., it says they must call on him. This is the objective of preaching, to have souls converted to where they recognize their desperate need for a Savior, to recognize that they are sinners, lost, headed for destruction, The next condition is that they must hear of Christ, that a glorious Savior does exist, that one who is powerful and merciful and loving and kind is present and has been presented to us as a merciful gift from a loving Father. 
And as we understand what people must hear, the last two rhetorically stated conditions instruct us on what we must bring to them. And that is the message of Christ. Preachers must preach. This word preach in the original language is rendered the word caruso. And it means to proclaim openly, unashamedly, without hesitation, to be a herald or an ambassador of a royal representative. A herald in the Greco-Roman world was a representative of Caesar. He would take a report, a message, from near and far. And he was referred to as the town crier. You might hear him in the town square upon arrival, screaming, Hear ye, hear ye, Caesar has won a great victory this day. He is bringing news. He is bringing a report that is of utter importance, that needs to be heard. He is a herald of good news. Think of the ancient world and the far distances that this herald would have to travel, on foot or on camel. They didn't have the modern luxuries of the vehicles that we have today. But they would endure the sweat of their own brow. They would endure great fatigue. They would go to great strength, great lengths to take this message as a means of obedience to their commanding officer, to the one who was superior to them. They would take this message as a means of mercy near and far. And friends, that's what we are called to do. As we understand that as Christians in our own personal lives, we are called to uphold a standard of holiness. God tells us that we are to be holy as he is holy. We are called to give unceasing thanks to the Lord. We are called to not forsake the gathering together with other believers. There are many things we are called to. But friends, for the advancement of God's kingdom, for the advancement of God's redemptive work on earth, the role that he has employed us to is that of ambassador, that of herald, to be proclaimers of his good news. And we understand that the world today has told Christians to be silenced. There's a great and utter fear that many Christians have inside. There's a trepidation and trembling that we experience in public settings at times when we see ourselves as the minority. And we can be pressured into thinking that evangelism consists of things that it truly does not. And first and foremost, we must understand that 
Evangelism is not the advancement of our own glory. Evangelism is not testifying solely to what work God has done in our lives. While this is a good thing to share our testimony, our personal testimony is not the essence of evangelism. For in 2 Corinthians 4 or 5, Paul says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. With ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. While the work that Christ has done in our lives should evidence and image forth the work that he has done undoubtedly in us and be a beacon to other individuals, give off an aroma of life that is foreign to them, it is still incumbent upon us to share the good news that a Savior has come to save us from our definite fate. Secondly, friends, we think of evangelism in our modern age at times as mercy ministry, meeting the temporal temporal needs of others. And again, while this is a good thing, and this is something that Christians ought to do, For Christ commands us to care for the least of these. This is not the primary call of the Christian. The primary call, once again, found in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The advancement of our own original ideas is not intrinsic to our primary duty as Christians. We can feel pressured in moments to answer a fool according to his folly. If one comes and disingenuously has questions or raises and a peripheral question to that of the gospel to try to discount the credibility of Christians. At times, we can feel the need to answer them according to their folly. But the primary way for us to avoid falling into these trappings is to understand that the proclamation of the gospel must be centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ. The necessity of the person and work of Jesus Christ and the nearness of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Paul's argument, if we trace it all the way through the book of Romans, we understand that in Romans 1 to 3, he indicts all of humanity. And he is doing this full gospel proclamation through Romans 1 and 8 because He has not yet visited the church in Rome. He has heard reports of it growing, but he is in Corinth, and he is needed in the church in Jerusalem before he can visit the church in Rome. And he pens this heartfelt letter to the church in Rome to ensure first and foremost that they have the gospel right. As Riley mentioned a moment ago in 
chapters 1 through 8, he is clarifying the gospel. And then in the latter half, from 9 to 16, he's stating the implications of how we are to live out as Christians. And in Romans 1 to 3, as I just mentioned, he indicts all of humanity and he upholds God's righteousness. We see in Romans 4 to 5 that he establishes justification by faith apart from works, faith in the better Adam. Romans 6 and 7 speak of our union with Christ and fighting against the flesh. So whereas we get justification right in Romans 4 and 5, we understand our sanctification in Romans 6 and 7. Romans 8, as some commentators would say, is the greatest book in the Bible. It is a crown jewel in the apex of the gospel, for it speaks of our glorification with Christ. It speaks of the gifts sealed in the Holy Spirit for those who are living in the Spirit. Romans 9 and 11 sandwich the chapter that we are considering tonight. And it's a very strategic placement. It's an inspired placement, inspired by God. And Romans 9 and 11 both elicit a, a discourse on the salvation of Israel. But here we are in chapter 10, and we see that at the outset Paul in chapter 10, verse 1 says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. He recognizes the state of unbelievers, namely the Jews. If chapters 9 and 11 speak to the salvation of Israel, he's speaking immediately here of his brothers according to the flesh, the Jews. He has a deep desire for their salvation. He cries out, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer for them is that they may be saved, which is in accordance with what Riley gave to us last week. An earnest desire poured out through prayer to God for the salvation of unbelievers. Paul's desire is further given to us in verse 2. He says, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. He has a desire for them to acquire true knowledge, knowledge of Christ. Again, knowledge that justification does not come by works, by strict adherence to the law, but by faith in Christ on the one upon whom they must call, the one in whom they must believe and place their utmost trust and faith. Not just a whimsical hope and desire, but a firm foundation that trusts and truly believes in the promises of God. And what we come to understand is that this zeal that they have for God is misplaced. And even in today's modern world, there's truly two types of unbelievers. There's the theist and the atheist. And I'm sure some of us know both. 
And we must understand that these individuals who are in the category of theist, they have a zeal for God, but it's misplaced. And zeal is often misplaced when it is misinformed or uninformed. And again, this is why God has enlisted us. This is why God has dispatched us to proclaim and to preach, to openly speak of his glory, to openly make sinners aware of their sin and openly let them know that a Savior does exist for them to cry out to, to place their hope and their faith in. And I think it's worth repeating that many times when speaking with the other category, the atheist, will receive debate-like questions. They have a zeal to win arguments because their trust is in themselves. They believe they, tra- they transcend God. And in doing so, I'll remind you, do not answer a fool according to his folly. If they ask a question, and your response is Christ. You have honored Christ. And that is our duty, friends. I think it is of utmost importance that we consider the standard that God uses to gauge a life well lived as opposed to the standard that the world uses. And again, the standard that the world uses is self-centered. It's, look at me. Look at what I've earned. Look at what I've worked for. Look at what I've conjured up, whether it be intellect, whether it be material, whether it be achievements. It's the preaching of oneself that the world would cause you to think is glorious. But God's standard is different. God gauges a life well lived based upon the advancement of the gospel. The participation in his spirit. One who willfully and cheerfully disseminates the good news of great joy of salvation through Jesus Christ. And friends, it's necessary to remind you that salvation is a joyous experience. So often, whether it be through fear and trepidation or just constant worry of how others will respond to us, we can water down the truth. We can do our best to say just enough to think that we've done what we've been called to do. And at times, we can even allow the countenance of our face and the posture of our very being to present as though it's not joyous, that we come across as stern sticklers of fun, all the while discrediting that the fullness of joy exists in the presence of God and pleasures forevermore at his right hand, as Psalm 1611 tells us. So I would challenge you and I would encourage you that 
as you do go out into the world. And immediately, as you do go out into this campus and you seek opportunities to share the gospel with your lab mates and your professors, your friends, if you happen to participate in intramural sports, anywhere that you go, that you would wear a smile and that you would not be disheartened by those who reject you, for they are truly rejecting Christ. And again, it is not your duty to dictate their response to the message, but it is your chief duty to be a cheerful and willful proclaimer of the message. And as we look at, as we've just looked at God's ordinary means, we'll now look at God's mandate of obedience. Immediately following these rhetorical statements and God's clear compliment of those who preach the good news, there's a contrasting conjunction that immediately interrupts the flow of the passage. Verse 16 reads, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? This statement clearly states that some have not obeyed the gospel meaning it is imperative that obedience follow the hearing of the gospel. And somebody might say, well, if, they haven't heard, if they've heard the gospel, but they don't obey the gospel, what am I to do then? And friends, we have to come to the understanding that it's been prophesied from long ago that hard hearts would endure. And that's not a bleak truth, but instead it's an encouragement to us to understand that those who walk away and those who do reject the truth, it shouldn't be disheartening to you because it is not as though you have failed, nor is it as though God has failed, but that things are taking place as according to plan that God is separating the wheat from the chaff. And this is a direct quote that he uses to reinforce his argument here from Isaiah 53, 1. If you would turn there with me. Isaiah 53, verse 1 reads, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And it's important to understand that here, Isaiah is not using future verbs. He's using past tense verbs because he's prophesying of the future reality that there will be those who reject the gospel even upon hearing its glorious truth. 
he's looking past Christ's incarnation. He's looking past Christ's perfect life. He's looking past Christ's sacrificial death and his resurrection. And he's accounting of Israel's epiphany moment where they look back and they recognize that the Savior whom they have neglected for so long is the very one that they killed. And we see in Acts 2, at Pentecost, as Peter preaches, a whole host of Jews are mourning because of the proclamation of the gospel that falls on their ears. And it says that day many were saved, but some still went away not believing. And friends, you may preach the gospel in a crowd and the majority may listen. But you also may preach the gospel to one individual and they mar you and laugh at you and walk away. The point that is being made here is not that you are responsible for others' reaction to what you preach, but the point that is being made here is in order for anyone to be saved, they must hear the gospel. And in order for them to hear the gospel, someone must preach it. And in order for someone to preach it, they must be sent. And the good news to us is that each one of us has already been sent. We've been sent by Christ. We've been commissioned and dispatched by the Lord himself. At the end of each and every gospel, most notably we're aware in Matthew 28 of Christ's great commission to all of us. Go forth and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that he has commanded. That essential aspect that obedience is necessary. But also understanding that obedience does not come from just us. That obedience is granted to us from Christ. And that, and that obedience presses on in us through the help and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Philippians, Philippians 2 tells us that it's God who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He is persevering. He is pressing on, on our behalf as we have been united to him in Christ. And that's why it's important to understand the entirety of Paul's argument here. This is not some detached text in Romans 10. But it is instructions to us that has already been launched and is attached to the foundations that have been stated in Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, all the way to 10. I think in immediate, in immediate support of this text, we see in Romans 1 that Paul states in verse 14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you all who are in Rome. He says that he is eager just after stating 
that he has come to them in order to reap some harvest among them, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. He has come to reap harvest, and he is eager to do so. And he's saying that he's doing this out of obligation. How peculiar is it for someone who says that they're doing something out of obligation to say that they're eager to do it? Typically, we're eager to do things because we adore it. But Paul is stating here that there's no distinction between God's obligations on us and the adoration that exists in us to fulfill those obligations. For he is eager to preach the gospel. It is imperative for us to understand that God's general revelation is a quiet invitation. Everyone is without excuse as they look out on the grandeur and the glory of all that has been created, for proclaims that there is a creator. It beckons you to look up and to look out. But God's special revelation that comes through his word commands that we proclaim with authority that we surrender and that we would submit or that we would receive the justice that our unlawful actions require. And friends, the gospel, the gospel is offensive. But it's intended to be offensive because its intention is to offend our humanistic fallen sensibilities so that we would trust in God's divine wisdom as opposed to ourselves and our futile efforts. And as I prepare to close here, I would just like to give you a very practical way to think of sharing the gospel with your classmates here on campus. Whether it be in class, pre-class, post-class, over a meal, whatever it is, what must be shared can be categorized into four facets. The story of creation, the fall of man, redemption, and the consummation. And the reality that we must understand is that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We have all broken his holy and upright law. He has called us to be holy as him, and we have failed. And this offends people's sensibilities because we're inclined to trust in ourselves and think much of ourselves. But God has called us to make much of him. And in our disobedience, we have failed to do that. But in his great loving mercy and his compassion and kindness, he has sent one who is pure, who is from a completely different generation, who was not born of man, but born of a virgin and the Holy Spirit, so that he may redeem all of mankind, so that he may redeem all who would believe upon him, 
And it is of utter importance that this be the central theme of the gospel. If we don't share Jesus, if we just meet temporal needs, the eternal weight of sin will be felt by those whom we claim to love, by those whom we've been called to love. In the end, Christ overturns our miserable sin ridden human condition that piloted us and plummeted us into a perpetual state of dissatisfaction. He gives us the capacities to enjoy him forever. He's loosed our physical senses to experience all that God is for all of eternity. Not for a temporal time period, not just for five years, 500 years, or 5,000 years, not just for 500 million years and then ceasing, but forevermore. And that's a glorious message to be shared. We have confidence to sing about it with one another in close quarters such as this. We should have confidence outside of these walls, to share it cheerfully and willingly all the same. Recognizing that we are not alone in our proclamation of the gospel. Recognizing that it is not us who actualizes faith in others. Recognizing that Christ has more accuracy than a Tom Brady to pinpoint the exact points of an individual's life that would make them feel uncomfortable so that they would understand their need for a Savior. He's more powerful than a gunship, for he doesn't just take life, but he takes living souls and transforms the affections of their hearts so that they would be obedient to Christ, so that they would honor God. And he is able to bring about a harmony and a peace far greater than Yo-Yo Ma or anyone else in the heart of each and every individual. So I would encourage you to go out into this campus and seniors who are preparing to depart from school, go out into the world and for the rest of your life have great courage and confidence that Christ is with you if no one else is with you as you proclaim the soul-saving message that is the gospel. For our passage concludes stating, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Friends, once again, you're not responsible for someone's response, but you are responsible. It is your duty to proclaim Christ and him crucified, and him resurrected, so that all who would believe and trust in him would share the same fate. I hope you will proclaim this message. Would you pray with me? God, how great you are, how wise you are,
We are humbled that you've elected to incorporate us into your sovereign plan to save sinners. That you've given us a role to play on your team, that you've enlisted us in your army. We ask that you would reorient our spirits to not trust in ourselves and our own lofty speech, but to trust in your wisdom as we go forth with your soul-saving message. We would ask that you would grant us great courage and boldness to be those who are unashamed of your gospel, but who seek to bring about your bountiful harvest and offer it to you so that you would actualize faith in sinners. And lastly, Lord, we would ask that you would grant us joy so that we would be cheerful in our proclamation of the gospel so that sinners would recognize that we are sincere in our message. Lord, we thank you, we praise you, and our sole pursuit is your glory. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our mediator, our high priest, our Lord and our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.